This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Jennifer Chacon. I'm a professor here at uh, UCLA School of Law, and I'm delighted to be here and just so grateful to the Law Review for uh, their foresight and insight um, in uh, in uh, hitting upon this topic, uh, and uh, and just uh, glad to have played any small role in um, in bringing people together to have this important conversation, and one that I think, as the first panel made clear, and that the panels throughout the day will make clear, one that really has suffered from a dearth of academic attention. So I, hopefully, this uh, this uh, conversation will be the beginning of uh, of a of a much longer and deeper conversation um, that we're uh, we have the the privilege of beginning today. So I'm going to briefly introduce our speakers. Um, our first speaker is going to be uh, Julia Mendoza, who's a lecturer in law and a Thomas C. Gray Fellow at Stanford Law School and a former student of mine. Um, so that Johnson. makes it especially a privilege to have her here today. Um, second on the panel will be Ana Muñiz. She's an assistant professor of criminology, law, and society at the UC Irvine School of Social Ecology. Uh, next up will be Amada Armenta. She's an assistant professor of urban planning at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. Uh, and last but certainly not least is uh, Dean Kevin Johnson, the dean and maybe a pious professor of public interest law and Chicano studies at the UC Davis School of Law and my former boss. Um, so it is a pleasure to have all of these people here today. Um, and I look forward to their conversations. And without taking any more time, I want to turn it over to Julia. Wonderful. Uh, well, first off, I just want to say it's just such an honor to be here. And I think, you you know, and I, I say this from the most sincere part of my heart, but I would literally not be sitting in this chair if it wasn't for Dean Johnson and Professor Chacon and beautiful Laura Gomez in the very back. Um, I mean, their mentorship was essential for me being here, and so I think that's kind of, you know, there's so much beautiful work that we're doing today, and I think I just want to kind of shine a light on the fact that there's a lot of work for us to even be here in this room, so I just want to say, start with that. Um, my hope for my 10 minutes is to kind of just really illuminate what the school-to-prison pipeline looks like in Stockton Unified School District. I've been working with the Stockton Unified School District originally when I was a racial justice fellow at the ACLU of Northern California in 2011. When I went back to uh, New York to do my graduate work, I, I worked in a lot of school districts. I worked in Oakland, I worked in Contra Costa, I worked in Elk Grove, but there was something beautiful about Stockton and the community of Stockton that really stuck with me. And so I actually went back to an organization that I had originally met um, called Fathers and Families of San Joaquin Valley. And Fathers and Families is run by a man named Sammy Nunez, who's formerly incarcerated and the executive director. And I, I mean, I was really blunt about it. I was like, yo, Sammy, I, I have to write a book. And he's like, I got you. I got you, sis. And so um, the heart of this project and the heart of this presentation comes from my work with Sammy. So specifically, I'm going to talk about the school police. And um, I promise this is the most wonkiest part of my conversation. But in California, you basically originally before 2014, when the local control funding formula was put into place, the way that they would administer school funds in California was this kind of really uh, bizarre revenue limit formula that no one really knew kind of how it worked or was organized. Um, and then on top of that, there was categorical funds that they would also administer, but the categorical funding had very specific restrictions for how the school districts could use that money. And so after the local control funding formula was put into place in 2014, the money was broken up very differently. And now what's going on is basically there is a base grant which is administered for the number of students per school district. And then if you have students in your school district that are socioeconomically disadvantaged, um, English student, learner students, or foster youth, you will get extra money. And that is the supplemental grant. And then if you are a specific school district that, in addition to, um, has basically over 55% of your student population qualifies underneath, underneath those three categories, then um, you will receive a concentration grant. And the California Department of Education, you know, gives this money out, but doesn't, like, they have, like, what they call state priorities, and those priorities range from, you know, pupil achievement to parental, um, parental engagement. But the one that I want to focus on today is this kind of really vague category and priority that's called school climate. Because what happens in Stockton is they take that money that's for school climate. And I mean, just kind of, you know, you guys can shout out some answers. Like, what, how do you think that money could be utilized to kind of create a healthy school climate? Just counselors. counselors. Arts? What else? Healthy food and cafeteria. Yes, healthy food and what else? <laughs> 
sports. Yes, 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 yes. Love this. Okay. And what Stockton does is takes that money and basically puts it to a school police department, the majority of it. This is the school, um, this is their school picture <laughs> uh, of 2018. This does not include the, I think it's like around close to 56 uh, campus school monitors and the 37 ca campus school assistants, which are also underneath the guise of the chief of police. So it's a really large, large, large school police department. And so the ACLU of Northern California is issued a Public Records Act request. In two, well, they issued it in 2016. They got, the, um, they got the information in 2017. And this is the racial breakdown of uh, the, the Public Records Act request that kind of looked at citation data and arrest data from August 2012 um, to June 2016. And what they found that there was close to 2,000 arrests. And the arrests were um, for mostly nonviolent offenses, so to speak. The number one offense was disturbance of the peace, which um, if you actually look at the penal code of disturbance of the peace, it is, um, there's three different categories, but one of the categories is called basically in so many words, like being loud and obnoxious in public, which I don't know about you, but I was like super loud and obnoxious in public in high school. Um, kind of still am some days. And so, you know, we have possession of marijuana, truancy, battery on school property, which is usually a school fight. Um, and again, I went to a school district, which I, you know, when a fight happened, like, you know, parents were called, the teacher broke it up, and it was dealt with in, without police. And so I think that can be done. I believe that can be done. Um, violating curfew, burglary, possession of a weapon, which could be anything from like your grandmother's hat pin to like a sharpened toothbrush, and theft. And so this is the breakdown of the school, um, the racial kind of distribution of the arrests. And kind of I think similar to uh, Professor Hernandez's um, description earlier, I mean, what you really again see is this racial disparity amongst black students. Um, I also see this with the expulsions in the school districts. I see this with the suspensions in the school districts. So it is part of like kind of the entire, quote unquote, all the mechanisms that kind of uh, take up the space that is the school to prison pipeline. And you know, just kind of taking out the disturbance of the peace, here's the breakdown, the racial breakdown of what disturbance of the peace looks like. This is more or less on point with truancy and the other offenses, but just to kind of give you an example. Again, you see racial disparity amongst black students. You also see racial um, disparity amongst black students with disabilities as well. This was data based on a Public Records Act request from 2000, 2012 to 2016. I was at the ACLU in 2012, and I issued a Public Records Act request at that time from 2007 to 2012. And more or less, we basically saw the same trends. So we're basically looking at data over a 10-year period where you see the same types of racial disparities and high levels of policing in a school district. And you would think that the school district would see this and be like, maybe we should think about school police. But instead, what I'm kind of seeing is that basically they're trying to interweave the, the policing into the actual educational fabric of the school district. So, you know, from their policy uh, guide in 2008, you know, they say officers are neither expected to be responsible for the day-to-day -day discipline of the student body, nor be responsible for routine supervision of students during passing periods or of cafeteria lunch times. But today what the policy is kind of like the way they kind of see and understand, and it's definitely underneath the mantle of community policing, which I think is something we can kind of really take apart. Um, is, you know, school resource officers are also known as SROs work diligently to reduce juvenile crime by establishing close relationships with students and building a positive rapport. The SRO also works alongside with school administrations to encourage students and participate in school functions and activities. SROs serve as mentors, role models, and protectors. And this new role of school police officer I just find really problematic, especially, again, because this is a lot of money that should be going to school climate, but instead it's going to this kind of, like, hyper-policing. Um, thank you. And so, you know, just to kind of show you some images of what this looks like. And you can go, because um, basically Stockton, I mean, every school district has this, and you can go to their website and see this, but they have a local control accountability project or plan, so kind of aligns the money. 
And it pays for money such as what's called trunk or treat, um, which during Halloween, kids get dressed up and go to the school police department. And, you know, they pass out candy and they paint faces, which, like, don't get me wrong. I think passing out candy and face painting is great. But I just, I really challenge us to all think, like, why does this need to be done by somebody with a badge and a gun? You also have cocoa with canines, where you pass out hot cocoa and you get acquainted with touching and getting stiffed by the dog. Cocoa. <laughs> you also have a tree planting ceremony where you can all come together and you know spend a really lovely afternoon planting a tree together. Which again, I think planting trees are awesome. I'm not against that, but I just do think that we should think about why a cop needs to be in this picture. And then finally, the last kind of little tidbit I just want to mention is that, you know, in addition to this, like, hyper-policing and hyper-policing of activities that don't need to be policed, they also have, like, decided to integrate the, the police into the actual education of this, like, um, pr processes of the schools. So, for instance, you have a school district that barely 50% uh, of the school district are graduating with the um, requirements necessary to go to basically a four-year school, which I... Um, some of the smartest people I met went to, up through the community school system in California, but I do know it's a really arduous process, and so I think you're already like really setting up kids if you don't give them like the required necessities to be able to go on to a four-year college in California. But instead of like actually putting money towards that, they are putting it towards such things as an explorer academy, um, where they basically are training young youth to be, and again, mostly Latino and black youth, to be police officers. If you graduate from eighth grade, you're allowed to participate in this. And just in case that's not alarming, they also have a public safety academy, thank you, um, which goes to basically starting at the young age of second, third, and fourth graders. The last bit is that, you know, in, well, as I was writing the paper for this uh, conference, the attorney general finally actually settled with the school district. And they have now a five-year settlement, so we'll see what that unfolds. But again, instead of actually thinking through, like, maybe we should get rid of school police on campus, what they've chosen to do is basically rename their school police department. So now the school police in Stockton are called the Community Oriented Outreach Program, um, which, again, another level of something to think about. So thank you for your time. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm looking forward to sharing uh, some very in-progress uh, work with you. Um, that's for a new book that maps databases and information systems across the local, state, and federal levels um, and considers the effect of these systems on law enforcement and policing practices over time. So currently, a large portion of the public discourse regarding immigration in particular is centered on the spectacular physicality of the border wall. However, more relevant to immigration enforcement and law enforcement in general may be the ongoing construction of digital infrastructure to surveil and classify immigrants and other targeted groups. So interoperable databases are quick becoming the connective tissue that feeds law enforcement agencies into one another at various jurisdictions. So building upon a number of immigration surveillance and policing scholars, including some listed here, um, I envision the border as a series of roaming elastic spheres that are collapsible and expandable in multiple ways. They're simultaneously bulging with mass digital information and also can collapse down into a tiny package, a digital data, data double that can be moved across jurisdictions and nation states and directed toward an ever-widening group of criminalized immigrants. So it's not necessarily a territorialized border, but rather a territorially reconstituted, multi-directionally expansive, as uh, Menjivar notes, border, that stretches outwards, outwards to intercept immigrants before they reach the physical territory of the border. Um, at the same time, it pushes inward um, to police immigrants and other people of color deemed illegal deep in the U.S. interior. Digital surveillance and criminal categorization takes border building into another dimensional space which can reach in all directions and diffuse to infinite heights. It also enables the border to adopt a broader temporal reach through the use of analytical tools and digital data to dig deep into the past, of, to the past biographies of targets and into the future to predict risk and threat. So to demonstrate some of these dynamics, 
I'm going to briefly introduce you to a few of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's information collection, storage, and sharing programs. Um, one particularly important system has transformed through several iterations, um, and that's starting in 1984, the Deportable Alien Control System, or DOCS, which from the mid-1980s to the early 2000s um, served as INS's primary uh, database for quote-unquote suspected violators of immigration law. Um, in 2007, DOCS was replaced uh, with a collection of applications called the Enforcement Case Tracking System, also just called Enforce for short. And then by 2010, um, the Department of Homeland Security established a data repository called the Enforcement Integrated Database, or EID, to store the information that was processed and created and accessed and modified through these enforced applications. So the shift brought really substantive changes. And one of those um, is uh, the categories of individuals that were covered by these databases. So who could be entered into these databases? And so in, by 1997, with DOCS, uh, the individuals covered by the records in these systems were, quote unquote, aliens alleged to be deportable by the INS. Um, by 2009, uh, uh, people in the enforced system had expanded to um, records pertaining to the investigation, arrest, booking, detention, and removal of persons encountered during immigration and criminal law enforcement investigations and operations included by DHS. So pointing out some key words here, we have this pivot from one database to another, and it expands information um, maintained in the system from people suspected or confirmed to be in violation of immigration laws um, to people encountered during investigations and operations. Um, so this change in criteria expands these databases um, to include uh, immigrants not in violation of immigration statutes, um, U.S. citizens who are encountered during these operations and investigations, um, and also people encountered during both immigration and criminal law enforcement activities. So these are tying criminal and immigration records together. Um, briefly, just the sources of information expand as well. So how DHS is getting information on people to enter into databases expands from the point of docs to a much more limited amount to this sort of ever-increasing amount. And the Trump administration is continually sort of releasing um, directives that really go under the radar about that allow them to expand how they access information through social media or through different record systems. Okay. So if we pick back up here in 2010, um, in 2010, ICE begins importing comprehensive criminal history information into this immigration record system from NCIC, from the National Crime um, Information Center database. Um, and so if we just pause, we have this, by 2010, this marked expansion of subjects that can be in this database, a marked expansion of um, information on those subjects, and specifically derogatory information like criminal history information and criminal records that can be used to construct people, particularly migrants, as dangerous or threatening or criminal. And then once... Uh, someone indeed, if they become labeled a quote-unquote criminal alien within this database, they sort of move to this next level where they're now eligible to have their information shared with various other law enforcement agencies. So one briefly I'll just mention because I think it's, um, it's, it's, uh, has a huge impact and it's going to become increasingly salient over the next few years. DHS has um, identified this as a system that they would like to expand. Um, this is the Criminal History Information Sharing Database. Um, it's established in 2010. It's not really deployed until 2014, but it enables the U.S. government to share criminal history information um, uh, with foreign partners when people are deported back. Um, so that information goes back with them. It also allows DHS to negotiate with foreign governments to get criminal history information on people that are currently in detention in the U.S. Mm. And then I'm just going to spend a few minutes talking about this other um, system that sort of mirrors um, CHIS but on this local level. So the Law Enforcement Notification System, uh, which is established in 2015 and it enables the U.S. government to share, um, again, criminal history information on, quote-unquote, criminal aliens with local and state law enforcement 
um, when that person is released into the U.S. So if that person is going to be released from ICE custody, um, they send a notification to that local law enforcement agency that a quote-unquote criminal alien is in uh, their jurisdiction. So information is sent. This is a, um, an example from a DHS document. It's made up data, so this is not anyone's actual information. Um, but this is what the notification looks like that a local law enforcement agency will receive if a criminal alien is released into their territory. Um, law enforcement agencies subscribe to receive these notifications, so I would encourage you to see if, if your local um, police department uh, or highway patrol or agency, um, some other agency does receive these notifications. So to give a, a, a quick overview of sort of what are these notifications, um, whose uh, information is being shared within them, a few things. You can see, one, that these notifications are steeply increasing for every year that data is available. Um, and I expect that they'll continue to increase. So these are new um, programs that are rolled out, and DHS is trying to use more and more. So when it's, when it's deployed first in 2015, you can see there's about 300 notifications. By the time we get to 2017, it's more like 3,000. Um, so it's a steep increase in those years. And you can see that it's concentrated um, mainly on, on uh, people who have Mexico as their country of origin, but um, a few other countries. It's also distributed um, unevenly by states. So there are states who have uh, uh, police departments who really love this program. Um, and so you can see California every year um, is a big uh, uh, consumer of this program, Arizona, Florida, Texas. So I think I'll end there since we're running out of time. Um, I'm happy to talk more about data collection and sharing in the Q&A. I also do want to give a um, shout out to the law office of Matthew Strugar, who is my FOIA litigator and is really responsible for the release of all this novel data, um, and then the research assistant, uh, Seth Williams. Mm -hmm. So um, my name's Amada. I guess for the last 10 years, I've been thinking of, well, actually, for my whole life, I've been thinking about immigration enforcement because I grew up on the border. Um, but for the last 10 years, I've been really thinking about um, local police and the ways that they participate in immigration enforcement, either formally, formally or informally, and also undocumented immigrants and their relationships with the police. So I'll tell you about two different projects I've done and then some of the frustrations that I feel about doing this work more generally. Um, so, you know, anyone that talks about immigrants and the police always starts with an accounting of the law and how it's changed. Um, they usually start around 1986, talk about the militarization of the border. They talk about all the laws that changed in 96 um, and the 287G program. And I mean, I'm sure you all know many of the things that have happened, but we criminalize immigrants more, we deport them for committing more types of violations, and we've made it increasingly, um, as Anna just mentioned, increasingly easy to identify people so that they can be deported. Um, and then, so that's what's going on with the legal side. And then there's other research that talks about um, what, the, what this does to immigrant communities. And Matt touched upon this earlier this morning, but the, the presumption is that unauthorized immigrants um, opinions of the police are driven exclusively by fear of deportation and their own illegality. So we can see that the law is also central to the construction of immigrants as being afraid of the police. And then this also frames Latino immigrants' fear of the police as the social problem that we have to address. And so if that's a social problem, then the proposed solutions are also mostly legal, right? And, they, and they're often addressed at different levels. So at the federal level, we need mass legalization and immigration reform. At the state level, we need driver's licenses or IDs for everyone. And at the local level, we need sanctuary and non-cooperation policies. Um, so I think my frustration with doing this work is that I actually think that what's going on with immigration con control and when we think about immigrant communities and Latino communities more generally, this stuff is not just about the law. Um, it's not simply about implementing laws. It's not about the law in the books and the law in action. When you get down to the way things are actually occurring on the ground, number one, people do things that are illegal all the time, like outside the law, both ICE and police, um, and all of us all the time because everyone breaks laws. It's what we do. Um, I mean, but more generally, like, 
so I think the solutions are not necessarily in the law and the problems are not only um, legal, but also that there's a lot of things that law enforcement agents do that's totally legal and it's still immigration control. Or, um, and similarly, there's a lot of things that police officers do that feel like immigration control that are not, strictly speaking, enforcing immigration laws. Um, so I, for two years, I lived in Nashville, Tennessee, um, and wrote my dissertation, that, which turned into a book called Protect, Serve, and Deport, The Rise of Policing as Immigration Enforcement, which is free online. You can download it, assign it to your classes. Um, in that book, I, well, when I did my research, um, I rode around with police officers in immigrant neighborhoods to understand what they were thinking about when they were stopping um, Latinos in particular and the sorts of decisions that they made about citing versus arresting people. Important things to know about Nashville, at the time that I was doing my research, it was a 287G jurisdiction, which meant that the sheriff's office had the authority to screen immigrants who were arrested um, so that they could be processed for removal. Um, and so I did some research with the sheriff's office and what was happening at the jail, but I think the really interesting things are what was happening with the police, who were, strictly speaking, not enforcing immigration law at all. Um, but of course, their actions are really important for who ends up getting funneled into jail and subsequently identified for removal. And so what I can tell you about riding around with a lot of different officers are two different things. So number one, and going to Nicole's point about how important it is to understand uh, cultural logics, like the logic of policing is that, uh, you know, cops need to make as many stops as possible so that they can find you doing something wrong and that they can um, cite you or arrest you and maybe find some contraband. And so in the Nashville Police Department, uh, cops were incentivized to pull as to make as many stops as possible and pull over as many people as possible. And these uh, these stops were people talked about their stats as if they were like baseball statistics, like how many stops do you have? Um, stats were how people were promoted. It was how whether or not officers were productive, whether they got a good car or a bad cop car or a dirty car or they got to take their car home, all sorts of stuff. Anyway, so cops were incentivized to pull people over. And we can see how in the South, and particularly in immigrant neighborhoods, um, when Latinos, most of whom um, were relatively recent immigrant arrivals who lived in the country without permission and were therefore ineligible for driver's licenses, when cops stopped them, they, the Latino immigrants become a professional problem for cops. Number one, you can't identify them. They don't have the right kinds of documents, at least not the ones that the police department is willing to accept. Number two, there's language barriers. Um, as a result, when I was writing with officers, I, I was always thrust in between as a translator, um, and officers felt lucky that I was going to like solve their language problems. Um, and then, uh, last but not least, it created a lot of opportunities for local police to feel that they were doing immigrants favors when they were just citing them versus arresting them. Um, officers arrested a lot of immigrants for driving without a license, but they also issued thousands and thousands of these misdemeanor state citations, which would end up turning into warrants if a person didn't go to the courthouse and pay hundreds of dollars of fees, and a lot of people wouldn't go because they were afraid. Um, but also this particular document let officers talk about how good and discretionary they were, um, how they weren't arresting people for immigration violations. Um, and then the last thing that I'll say just about the ways that law enforcement participate in immigration enforcement more generally is that uh, because the sheriff's office was only screening people for removal in the jail, they would say, if you have a problem with the people who are getting removed in Nashville, Tennessee, talk to the police. They might be racially profiling, but that's not on us. We just process everyone for removal, and we don't even decide who to deport. ICE decides who they're going to deport. And so then they have these stories about how they're actually helping people get a court date where they might get their case adjudicated. And then when you talk to the police, what they say is, we don't enforce immigration law. Um, we're doing the same thing that we've always done. If you have a problem with the fact that people are getting uh, deported from Davidson County, talk to the sheriff's office. They're the ones that have this program. But actually, we are an award-winning police department. 
when it comes to our relationships with Latino communities. And that's actually true. I could have shown you a lot of pictures, like the, one, um, the ones that Julia had. Um, the department does have, quote, community policing. Um, so now I want to pivot to this other work that I'm doing in uh, Philadelphia. Ooh, two minutes. Which is a, uh, which is a, sanctu a sanctuary city um, where I'm interviewing undocumented uh, immigrants about their relations uh, with the police. And I guess I just want to say a few different things. Number one, there's tremendous variation in the ways that undocumented immigrants think about the police. Not everyone is hiding in their houses and afraid of being deported. Some people think the police are good. Some people call the police for help. Um, and the other thing that I want to say is that although unauthorized immigrants in Philadelphia do not think that contact with the police will lead to deportation, they have a number of grievances about contact with the police that are just about the ways that local police do their jobs. Um, they're mostly about involuntary police contacts, being regarded with suspicion, um, getting fingerprinted but not arrested in the ways that that makes you feel like you're a target, um, uh, fines, fees, and car impoundments, so although there people won't get arrested for driving without a license, their cars will get impounded and it can be like $900 to get your car out. That feels extraordinarily, extraordinarily unfair. Um, and then the other thing that I want to uh, just briefly mention is that um, Philadelphia does all sorts of community policing. Their police department will go down to immigrant organizations and they'll have these meetings and they'll talk about their problems. And what happens is that immigrants will say, we feel like we're getting profiled, you're targeting us for stops. And the cops will say, we're sorry that you feel disrespected, you should never feel disrespected. And the, and the issue is, is that um, they're always talking past each other and we never get to a point when actually the real problem is not exclusively that people feel like officers don't behave without enough decorum, it's that the law allows officers to stop people and treat them suspiciously, to do um, investigative police stops, and to, to otherwise um, criminalize communities. Um, my time's up, so the last thing that I want to say when we think about um, sanctuary and we think about immigration control more generally is, is just to say that um, I don't think this stuff is only about the law. Like police criminalize people in entirely legal ways all the time. And when we think about what sanctuary is and what it means, I think sometimes it's being deployed as a way to treat immigrants as good hard workers and throw um, our like native born uh, communities of color under the bus. And so when we think about what sanctuary means, like cities should be safe for everyone, um, particularly black and brown communities and not just safe for immigrants. I'm Kevin Johnson from UC Davis, and I guess I'm the designated person to defend the law uh, since I'm from a law school. I, I want to I thank uh, the UCLA Law Review for creating this forum, an opportunity for us to have the, the, these discussions on, on critically important issues. Uh, this is an incredibly um, wonderful faculty, uh, and it's a, a perfect venue for, for this kind of event in uh, what some have called the Latino metropolis. Um, I want to thank uh, Jennifer Chacon uh, for allowing me to be on this panel with her. I am particularly pleased to be on a panel um, um, with, with two new friends, but also with a, a former former student, student Julia Mendoza, uh, and Jennifer Ch and a colleague, Jennifer Chacon. Um, I, I, in some ways, owe my deanship to both of them. Um, um, Professor Chacon was on the the, the uh, recruitment advisory committee when I was being considered for deanship and. Uh, Leah Mendoza was uh, an active student who uh, defended me against unjust attacks. Um, and uh, sometimes I don't know whether I should uh, be angry with them or thank them. Uh, but today, today I'll thank them. And I also want to thank the, the uh, conference um, faculty sponsors, you know, Devin Carbado, Sherry Johnson, Sherrod Thaxton. I, I very much appreciate this opportunity. And I always appreciate the opportunity to come back to Los Angeles um, because... Um, it's my hometown, and uh, I learned growing up here that race is ingrained in the criminal justice system as well as it's ingrained in the immigration system. Uh, so, and those lessons have um, stayed with me. 
Now, this morning we heard a bit about uh, survey data suggesting that uh, that next communities feared immigration enforcement. I guess I have a paper that says that fear is more than justified. Uh, and I, I think that uh, these times uh, are times when uh, we all should be concerned with immigration enforcement. Uh, there's a criminal justice angle, as the other panelists have suggested, too. The modern federal removal pipeline is the state criminal justice systems. Those justice systems feed into the removal pipeline, and because those systems have racially skewed results, that means the removal pipeline has racially skewed results. And that's why we see more than 90% of the non-citizens removed every year are, are Latinos. Uh, and that's been true uh, for the Obama administration as well as for the Trump administration. Um, but in some ways, these, these are more dangerous times uh, for the Latinx community than, than under President Obama uh, because the Trump administration uh, has taken some steps uh, to make the Latinx communities' presence in our communities even more precarious. We've seen some unprecedented measures that I'll talk about. We've seen a series of steps that I believe have a distinct anti-Latinx core. Uh, and, and what I, I think about when I think about what the Trump administration is doing uh, is I think about some uh, events in U.S. history that are now widely disfavored. I think about the repatriation during the Great Depression where roughly one million uh, Mexican persons of Mexican ancestry uh, were forcibly removed from the United States. Los Angeles was the epicenter uh, of that repatriation. It was a sustained movement to preserve jobs and benefits for U.S. citizens in persons of Mexican ancestry. Citizens are not, were, not, were not viewed as U.S. citizens. Uh, the repatriation also encouraged self-deportation, expressly targeted Mexicans. Another historical episode I'd point to is um, one that President Trump has praised, although he hasn't used its name, and that's Operation Wetback in 1954, a military-style operation focused on the Southwest that was run by a former general who was heading the, the INS at the time, resulted in, in mass removals, targeted Mexicans, and also resulted in self-deportations. In today's terms, we talk about both of those episodes as um, a form of ethnic cleansing, an effort to remove unwanted uh, groups from American society. Those groups at the time were persons of Mexican ancestry, not U.S. citizens as well as non-citizens. And what I think we're seeing today is, is a revival, a revival of the repatriation, a revival of Operation Wetback, although the revival may be worse than the original. President Trump has built on a, a record uh, established by President Obama's administration uh, of record numbers of deportations year after, after year. Mass removals, mass detention, uh, and Latinos were primarily affected. There was no immigration reform. Latinos were primarily adversely affected. Uh, he did implement a policy um, in 2012, a little, you know, about six months before the, the election, uh, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program uh, did provide temporary relief uh, to um, minors who, who came to the United States or, you know, to, to undocumented people who came to the United States as minors. Uh, Eighty percent of the beneficiaries of DACA were Latinos. Now, President Trump is built on the Obama structures and also is built on creating a crisis mentality. He began his campaign by talking about Mexicans as criminals and rapists, maybe a few good people. Uh, his attacks are much broader than, than uh, just on Mexicans, though. Uh, he's also attacked Central Americans and, and, and other people of color. He's talked about the caravan from Central America as an invasion. He's characterized Salvadorans as a group, as MS-13 members and as animals. And he's very quick to try to capitalize on crimes committed by illegals. He'll tweet about um, um, uh, crimes committed by undocumented people, including a, a, a horrible killing uh, alleged, well, allegedly done by an undocumented immigrant in, in Sacramento area, Luis Bracamantes, 
uh, where the Trump administration is seeking to justify the wall has a video on Luis Bracamontes. Uh, he also tweeted about the need for a wall in connection with the, the tragic killing of a, an, a sheriff in Stanislaus County. Um, and we know that President Trump thinks in racial categories. That's why you have things like the, 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 the Muslim ban. But you can look at many, many, many policies. It's not just one or two that, in my mind, amount to an effort to repatriate persons of Latino ancestry. The wall, which was mentioned earlier, is one. The attacks on sanctuary cities um, are another. Actually, it's interesting to me uh, that Jeff Sessions and others are, are opposing efforts by state and local governments to have their own policies with respect to immigrants when they invoked states' rights when it came to civil rights for all people. Uh, the Trump administration has sought to revive uh, and, and enhance crime-based removals, brought back a program known as Secure Communities that the Obama administration decided was too broad and included too many people uh, arrested for, not necessarily convicted of minor offenses. Crime-based removals, as I mentioned before, have a disparate impact on Latino non-citizens. President Trump has sought to end DACA, uh, which would disparately impact Latino communities, since 80% of DACA recipients are Latino. President Trump has taken unprecedented measures towards deterring Central American asylum seekers from coming to the United States. No president in modern history has taken these kinds of measures, from President Reagan all the way through President Obama. The, the one that most people remember is the family separation policy of last, last summer, uh, which um, we're still trying to piece together and put families back together. Uh, he's now trying to engage in family detention, something that President Obama also tried to engage in. He's now trying to put together a series of, of policies that would return asylum seekers to Mexico uh, while their asylum claims were pending. Um, many of these measures have been found to violate the law, and all of them would disparately impact Latinx communities. President Trump has also sought to end temporary protected status, a temporary form of relief, which would negatively impact 200,000 Salvadorans, as well as Hondurans and Nicaraguans. Uh, as well as also Haitians and Sudanese, who just are coincidentally, I guess, people of color. But generally, the end of TPS would di have disparate impacts on, on Latinx communities. And President Trump also seeks to limit legal immigration to decrease Latino immigration. His attacks on chain migration really is an attack on family-based immigration, and the top country of origin of family-based immigrants are is Mexico. In total, I think in this, this administration, what we really are seeing is a modern, a new, and improved Latinx repatriation campaign. It's often not expressly race-based, and sometimes colorblind reasons are offered. But in fact, I don't think it can be coincidence that all these programs, all these policies, would negatively impact the Latinx community. Thanks very much. So I'll forego slides, too, um, just to simplify things, and, um, and I'll be brief. So I, I wanted to present a little bit substantively, um, and then I'm going to uh, ask the panel a couple of questions and have you engage with one another. Um, so uh, I have also been recently quite interested in questions of policing, um, policing in immigrant communities, um, and uh, and unlike Amada, my work has been closer to home in Orange County and, and in Los Angeles. I've been part of a research team that's been interviewing um, immigrants and immigrant-serving organizations in those two counties um, over the last uh, three and a half years, really looking from 20, 2014 through, uh, 20, through the end of 2017, so through the first year of the Trump administration, with the hopes of trying to get a sense of a number of things, but among them, um, sort of how people were experiencing enforcement, but also policing. And I want to sort of emphasize that those things uh, have heavy uh, overlap, but they are not the same, right? There is there's both street policing and immigration enforcement. Um, and the, the, I'm just going to make a couple of brief points, many of which I think align uh, with some of what Amada was saying. So first is uh, there is a ubiquitous sense uh, in uh, in Latinx communities in Southern California, in both Los Angeles and in Orange County, which have different political valences, but uh, but seem to uh, excite unity on this uh, theme, uh, that they are policed distinctly based on vulnerabilities that emerge as a result of the status of some members of their community. Um, so. Uh, 
undocumented for for a long time in the United in, in California, um, un, undocumented residents were unable to access driver's licenses as a consequence of this. Uh, uh, law enforcement generally knew that uh, unauthorized residents were driving without licenses, and one of the consequences of this was, to the extent you're incentivized, as Amada says, to increase citations, one, uh, one, or to collect fines and fees. One uh, easy way to do that is to target communities that you think are going to be ha have these sorts of violations. And the consequence of this is that uh, uh, when we talked to immigrants, and this is true in Los Angeles County and in Orange County, um, about sort of some of the uh, the ways in which they relate to police in their neighborhood. Uh, they overwhelmingly say that they expect to be racially profiled when driving, expect to be pulled over, expect to uh, to be asked for documentation. When pressed on why, um, and and you know we can this is their subjective uh, impression, of sort of what's happening. This is not I'm, I'm not uh, kind of pulling the data to to map, although for purposes of the paper, we'll be doing that. But I think uh, what I want to get at is there's this understanding that they recognize that this vulnerability has been identified uh, and that it's being used strategically. And when pressed on why or how they're, how they're singled out, so if they're asked, you know, wh why are they singling you out, uh, overwhelmingly, <laughs> people that we talk to say we're being singled out because we are Latino. Some, some say Hispanic, some or Hispano, some say Latino, but they, they tend to say that it's on the basis of this category that we are being uh, pulled over, not because of status, because status is obviously unknown, right, at the time of the encounter. It's because of something that, they, that, that, that is about the way they uh, look and where they are um, that, uh, that is exciting the interest. So there's this sense uh, that that is why this is happening to them. Um, and then many of them have stories, including stories of people who, for whom this has happened multiple times, in one case four times. Um, one woman that we spoke to said she's had her car impounded. Um, and, and also uh, sometimes uh, individual officers who, are, who, are, who come up in multiple conversations as people who are particularly interested in uh, pursuing these kinds of violations. So this, this is interesting because it, it shows the way in which status vulnerabilities of some members of the community change policing for the community as a whole, right? Because it's happening not just to people who are undocumented, but it's happening to people who might be policed as undocumented by virtue of where they are and how they look and how they speak. Um, and this is important because it, it uh, you know, in conversations that we have, there are obviously people uh, who are undocumented, who are you know, white, Australian undocumented folks. There's, there are, uh, lot, uh, there's a growing, in fact, the fastest growing uh, undocumented co uh, community is uh, the API undocumented community. So these are other undocumented um, communities. And we spoke uh, to, uh, to people kind of across racial groups as we were doing this research. And it was interesting because uh, immigrants, uh, undocumented immigrants from API communities said they didn't worry about racial profiling um, in the same way. So they would talk about how racial profiling does indeed happen, and it happens to blacks and Latinos that they worried about a lot of things. They worried about deportation. They had, there was a lot of instability in their lives. But their, their worry was not, you know, they worried that if they violated a traffic law, it made them very vulnerable um, to, uh, to potential interactions with DHS. But they, they had more confidence that they were unlikely to be singled out for kind of immigration status targeting on the basis of kind of racial markers than were our Latino respondents. So that's one interesting point that kind of highlights the way that race is doing work, that status, that's kind of status is masking for, for work that, that race is actually doing. And we also noted in speaking with some of our respondents who were either phenotypically more fair-skinned or those who were college educated, who said, I don't worry about being profiled myself. I worry about my father being profiled because he doesn't speak English very well because, because of the way he looks. So phenotype and language are doing work here in the way that race is being uh, constructed and enacted um, on the street in ways that I think that it's difficult to take account of in data um, and is worth kind of being part of the conversation here. Not all Latinos are being policed the same way, um, and, and, uh, and that complicates the conversation. Um, but it doesn't complicate the point uh, that uh, Latinos living in heavily immigrant communities are feeling distinctive forms of policing. Um, and that the fear is not, and this goes back to something Amada said, the fear is not generally uh, that that policing will lead to deportation, although that fear is real. Uh, the kind of the, the sense that there's a, a, a threat of deportation is a sort of a pervasive understanding in the lives of individuals without status. Um, but, but that's, in, in a lot of these encounters with police, the worry is not 
uh, that that police encounter will translate into deportation. The worry is that that police encounter will be costly, that that police encounter will uh, will result in the loss of a temporary, at least, loss of a vehicle, uh, that that police encounter will be demeaning, um, and that police encounter will sort of uh, carry over through the day as something that has, um, has felt like uh, some sort of a violation. So I think it is important to recognize that there are distinctive harms uh, that people are worrying about, and, and, and when we talk about immigration enforcement being enacted on the streets through local law enforcement, um, we often sort of assume that that's because the people are worried about deportation as the end game. But in fact, um, it's a lot of the same concerns uh, around racial profiling and policing uh, that are more pervasive um, in, in, in other contexts outside of immigration. So it's worth thinking about, uh, about that fact. Um, and that's all I wanted to say uh, for now. Um, but I want to give our... <laughs> oh, thank But I wanted to give our panelists a chance to interact some more around some of the questions that their comments have raised. And I'm just going to ask two really broad, really open-ended questions that I hope will allow you to engage with one another. And then I'll open it up for questions from the audience. So my first question is, the, the title of the symposium is Latinx Communities, Race, and the Criminal Justice System. But a lot of us on this panel have focused on uh, immigration and immigrants uh, and, and the policing of immigration. Um, and I wanted to kind of be intentional about um, in, in discussing sort of our focus. So there, there are obviously two distinct categories. There are lots of immigrants who are not Latino or members of the Latinx community, and there are lots of uh, members of the Latinx community who are not immigrants. Um, and so uh, but obviously, there's a reason uh, that we think that immigration, immigration enforcement, and changes in immigration policy matter and impact the policing of Latinx communities. So I wanted us to be more explicit um, and intentional about sort of why we think that or what in our own work sort of points in that direction. I was particularly struck by Anna, your slide that showed that as the databases are more heavily relied upon, uh, they increasingly uh, seem to focus on um, Latinx communities. So what's going on there that's sort of changing the who's in the mix, who's, who's being focused on, who, 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 who's, more, who's, uh, who's more heavily uh, centered in the database? Um, I think there are really interesting questions there that we could tease apart. But um, just thinking about kind of why, why this panel um, in this conference. And uh, Julia, your, your focus was really not on immigration, although you are dealing with uh, some immigrant communities and then some uh, Latinx communities that have been there for a really long time. Um, so if I would just ask you a slightly different form of the question, which is how do you think about immigration and immigration enforcement in the lives of these students that, you, that you're seeing here? And, and, and how do you think about them in, you know, in the, in the context of, uh, of policing uh, in, 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 in schools, or do you? Um, so I'll, I'll leave it there, and maybe I'll start, uh, maybe we'll start down, we'll start with Kevin, maybe. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and go that way, and then we'll come back this way for my second question. Uh, well, I don't know if I have much to say. I, I do think that, that, that this panel, in my mind, um, makes... Make, makes the complexities um, in the Latinx community even clearer. I mean, there, there are citizens, there are immigrants, there are indigenous appearing, there are less indigenous appearing. There are a great de de many variables that play out in different and complex, and I, I can't fully explain them, ways in the education system, in, in the immigration enforcement system, and the criminal justice system. And, and these these complexities um, um, with, um, in some areas, relatively little data to look at makes analyzing and discussing these questions um, very difficult, even though it's very important. Uh, so, so I do think that, that when we, we think of um, Latinx civil rights concerns, uh, there are slightly different concerns in different parts of the Latinx community that um, uh, may exist for some and not for others, uh, you know, and uh, really make our thinking about these issues uh, incredibly challenging. Is, is that a good punt? Sure. I'll take it. <laughs> Jennifer, I feel like you asked us a question that you already answered yeah. in your presentation, actually, really beautifully. But, like, I think you said that immigration does the work, immigration enforcement does the work of race. Um, for Latinos. I mean, I would just say that 
I think the immigration enforcement system and like the reason that so many Latinos end up being out of status is just because of white supremacy and immigration happens to be the ways that um, Latino communities get targeted. Why I think it's important to talk about immigration when we think about the ways that policing and the criminal justice system enforce um, act on Latino communities in particular ways is because there's a tremendous spillover effect either because people are presumed to be immigrants and or undocumented. So in Nashville, for example, police citizens would get assumed to be, um, they were assumed to be immigrants or undocumented, and people would be put in um, ice holds even if they were citizens, and so they would have to prove that they were legally present versus the other way around. Um, and then also just a tremendous um, number of people, even if you're not yourself an immigrant, are con connected to immigrants because we have multi-generational families and communities, and so um, this affects, you know, Latinos in particular in disproportionate ways. Yeah, I think when I'm looking at these databases and information systems, what really comes to the fore is that there are, um, there are mechanisms for constructing racial others in very broad ways. And so um, immigration status or perceived immigration status um, is an integral part of that, as is perceived race, as are various components of appearance. Um, and, uh, and I also think there's this sort of, as someone's information moves through these information systems and these databases, there's this sort of reification of race that happens and this like reductive um, aspect of race that happens, whereas we increasingly sort of do this, um, uh, this law enforcement categorization work with, um, you know, in ways that are like drop-down menus instead of narratives um, that are locking people into these very specific racial constructions and conflating those with criminality. And so um, often these systems, too, you know, there's risk a lot of risk assessment tools that are trying to predict future actions. Um, and sort of all, of all of these different components are being considered in trying to... Um, you know, label someone as potentially threatening, dangerous, you know, criminal, you know, criminal in the future, even if they're not criminal yet. Yeah, no, this is a great question. Um, I mean, I think in addition to the school to prison pipeline, there's also the school to deportation pipeline, um, which I didn't touch upon, but it does exist. In Stockton, I ha haven't seen that to the fullest extent in the Stockton Unified School District. However, you know, there is a high level of... Um, an immigrant community in the Stockton Unified School District and first generation and second generation. And, you know, I think um, kind of the story, the kind of speckles of stories that are coming to me, but I, uh, now I only get to substitute teach, but I for a long time taught at San Quentin and I also taught at um, uh, Upstate and Wallkill. And I, one of my students, I was, he was writing a report about the school to prison pipeline. And I one time asked him, I was like, you know, what was it like when you first came to prison? And he said, you know, it was funny because I got here and I thought, huh, this is just like school. And that, I, that, that's, like, that's always been a quote that's kind of guided my research of just thinking, like, what are we doing when we create spaces that feel like prison? Um, and, and, I mean, yeah, again, like, I, and the other, you know, kind of story that comes to mind that, you know, maybe tangentially answers this question is, Another student I worked with who was in the Stockton Unified School District, and I think, you know, part of the immigrant story and the immigrant hope is that, you know, the school system is the system in which your family can rise and your family can, you know, you can, your children can do better than your experience. And um, there was this one particular young woman that I worked with who she, uh, she, you know, her parents were immigrants, and she, you know, she was just working so hard and trying so hard for, like, school to be the avenue where she could, you know, she kind of embodied them, you know, her parents' dreams. And, and one day she was, like, walking to school, the bell had rung, and the police officer saw her, and it was, like, maybe, like, three minutes until she was supposed to get to her classroom. And he saw her, and he kind of told her, he locked the door in her face and um, told her to walk around. And so she did, and, you know, followed his. And then because, like, walking around caused her, to, like, a couple extra minutes, she was late. So then he basically arrested her for truancy. Um, and it was just one of those moments where you're like, if this, if, if, like, the school system in our society is, like, the one institution that's supposed to, like, like again, help people realize their dreams, and, like, that's the space and that's the feeling of that space, I think, um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I don't have an answer for that, but... Uh, 
that was my best effort. <laughs> no, that was great. Thank you. Um, the other, I, I guess, I had two other big themes I want to focus on, but I'll, I'll pick one. Um, I was struck by um, in Dean Johnson's talk, sort of um, the effort to identify continuities and discontinuities, right? The ways in which um, the, what we're seeing now is uh, similar to or continuous with um, historical patterns of enforcement um, that we've seen in the past and the ways in which those things are, are distinct. Um, and there was a little bit of that as well in Amada in your remarks sort of setting us up sort of with 1986 and the, the mid-90s laws as pivotal moments, right? How much of this is continuous? How much is uh, discontinuous? Um, and, and what, you know, what leads, what are the, what are the kind of law and policy changes that generate those continuities and discontinuities? So I wanted to just ask each of you to reflect on um, the kind of what you see, you know, kind of particular um, issues of this moment. Um, and, and I think, um, Kevin, in many ways, you've already given us <laughs> sort of your take on, on what's distinctive about this moment. Um, but in, I, I, I want to invite the other panelists to come in to that conversation and think about sort of what, uh, what are the defining features of this moment, um, both positive and negative, um, in this space that we're talking about, in this policing space? Um, and what are the opportunities, um, if there are opportunities, um, to, um, to, uh, for reform or for change or for transformation or for, um, for developments that, uh, that take a more productive um, uh, and maybe creative and productive and, uh, and, uh, and uh, constructive tack. Um, and I'll start with down at the end this time. Um, oh, okay. Um, well, I think, I think, you know, trying to be hopeful, what are the opportunities here? You know, the school education code doesn't really have any teeth. So, it, you know, it says certain ways about how you should suspend, how you should expel, um, but there's actually no enforcement to that. And what I've seen on the ground with different school districts, like to really push back against the school discipline issues and the school police issues, it's actually been community movement. Um, because, you know, what unfortunately, well, luckily a lot of school districts don't know this, but uh, it's actually really hard to bring a case against racial disparities in regarding to school discipline and school police. Um, again, the Attorney General just did this, so we'll see how that turns out. But even if they, like, your best effort, usually, like, I mean, at the ACLU, we realize that, like, okay, we'll just kind of, you know, come in and, and threaten this lawsuit, and then we'll, at best, like, the biggest hope is that we would settle. And settlements, you know, last for five years, but then after five years, what do you have? And so I think, you know, the hope and the opportunity is actually to make substantive change and to push back against these policing um, kind of forces and mechanisms is actually community movement, and there is, like, power in the community that I think... Uh, I'm really seeing kind of not only just in Stockton, but kind of across, you know, at least across Northern California where I do work um, being really effective. Um, I think for me, I've um, really been happy to see the sort of um, broad-based emergence of um, abolitionist movements that mm -hmm. are connecting um, these different structures of state violence that are maybe, you know, using different mechanisms, whether it be immigration enforcement and local policing, um, but having those sort of, those broader-based conversations. Um, you asked about continuities and discontinuities. I'd say continuities are that the police have always participated in deportation and immigration control in both overt and hidden ways. Um, but discontinuities are just that there's more ways, more technology, more capacity, more money for mm -hmm. ICE to identify people and use jails and prisons as a way to find them and increasingly courthouses. So to me, like what's changed is capacity. Um, and then as far as, um, well, I'm excited to hear from uh, the panel in the afternoon who will tell us how to solve all the world's problems. Um, but I just wanted to echo what Anna said was like, to me, the possibilities are organizing and like merging abolish ICE with Black Lives Matter and revolution. Mm -hmm. <laughs> revolution, that's a hard one to follow. Um, <laughs> I will be. I am optimistic in a lot of ways. In my talk, I know I wasn't particularly optimistic. Uh, but one of the things that this president has done is gotten people talking about immigration in ways that we haven't in many, many years. Uh, this president has, has made clear what his aims are, what he wants to do, uh, and there's been resistance to that, political resistance, 
through the Abolish ICE movement, through activism. You know, some of it was there before, but even, even more now. So I, I think that, that the chances for political change and reform with people watching and paying attention are great now in a way that they weren't great under President Obama. Some very bad immigration things happened under the Obama administration, other, other administrations. But people thought, well, we, we, overall he can be trusted and, and we, 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 sh, you know, we, we should work with him. Um, and I think uh, all bets are off with this president. And so there's a lot of attention being paid. Uh, we had a, two government shutdowns because of a border wall and a debate about a border wall. Uh, that, that's never happened in our history. This is really uh, an interesting time. And, and I also have to say another place for room for optimism for me is um, you know, there's, there's always sort of discontinuities in immigration law and its enforcement depending on all kinds of things like national security concerns, the economy, um, and things like that. But one of the things we're seeing in recent years is, is courts much more willing to engage in meaningful, not always, but often meaningful judicial review of immigration actions of the, of the president. Uh, I mean, um, we may not like, uh, and I don't like, uh, the fact that the, the, the travel ban was up, upheld. Uh, but there was at least some judicial review of the rationale given for it in ways that um, didn't take place not that long ago when it came to, to immigration actions. So overall, I see the courts as being one possible limitation of extreme measures. But really, I think, as, as others have mentioned, it's going to be through political action that meaningful change really takes place. I'll wrap us up um, and try to keep us more or less on schedule. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.